0: This message was recorded at Devoted, a cry-central festival for all the family. To find out more about Devoted, please visit devotedevent.org. Right. Okay. Well, welcome. Uh, Good to be with you for this seminar on the care of creation and global warming. Is this a sideshow? or a central concern for the church. Thanks for coming. Um, sorry, I haven't been uh, in this uh, life zone the last couple of days. I've been at another New Frontiers-related sphere camp speaking um, in Exeter and arrived on site uh, yesterday afternoon. Let's start by just reflecting on a very simple um, environmental issue. The question of pollution. Let's just think about that for a moment. In about 1989, I visited Romania for the first time in the post-communist era and stayed in a town where the, uh, the, there was mining, coal mining going on and a big river running through the, uh, the town. What I noticed was that they actually washed the coal in the river. And the impact of this was to fundamentally change the ecology of the river for everything else downstream. It was an uh, environmental catastrophe for that geographical area. Now, that's just one of thousands of examples we could give of the issue of water pollution. It's been estimated that water pollution accounts for the deaths of up to two million people every year. Untreated sewage enters the water supply in enormous quantities. Today in India, about 600 people will die of illnesses related to water pollution. That's just one example. Let's think about air pollution. In the year 2010, I was in the city of Cairo in Egypt. And I arrived with a group of people and in the evening... I decided to go for a jog on the streets of Cairo, something that I wouldn't necessarily recommend. A very, very busy, congested city. When I came back to the hotel, my breathing was strained. I was struggling with my breathing. I was facing the impact of incredible air pollution caused by motor cars, primarily carbon monoxide particulates, nitrogen oxide in the air. It's been estimated that air pollution in 2012 caused the premature deaths of 7 million people worldwide. Think about rubbish pollution. If you travel in the developing world, you will notice almost wherever you go that rubbish pollution is a fundamental issue that people face, Fund have estimated that 25% of the world's population do not have their rubbish cleared. 25% of people who live on earth. What would happen on your street if the council decided not to clear the rubbish for a couple of months? It's unthinkable to us. It's a daily reality for many people. And rubbish causes disease as well as many other things. In Nairobi in 2015, I, I had a look at all the rubbish on the streets and I went to the very big slum area known as Kibera, one of the biggest slum areas in Africa. And it, there were unimaginable quantities of rubbish on the streets, in the streams, in the parks, on the walkways, everywhere. And the uh, the recent issue that's grabbed the imagination of the Western world is plastic pollution. This has been a big issue uh, this year in our media. This is not a new phenomenon. I went with my wife on holiday this year to North Wales, to a place that we're very familiar with, and I've visited since since my childhood. And I was cycling along the North Wales coast, going down to the beaches and nearby, looking into the sea, and I can tell you that... What I can see now in the mature part of my life, I did not see 40 or 50 years ago when I was in the same place. Plastic is present, and that's in a country which really tries to deal with its waste. Plastic pollution is an astonishingly dangerous fact for our oceans, our fish. It's a risk to humanity. The breakdown of plastic in the oceans is something tremendously dangerous for the future. But what's really helpful for us to know is, according to the best available information, only about 9% of plastic produced in the world is recycled, about 12% is incinerated. That makes 79% that is continuing to exist in the environment. Now, pollution is only one environmental issue. We could talk of biodiversity loss, and all sorts of other environmental issues um, uh, in this seminar. But I'm just focusing on pollution because it's everywhere, it's endemic, and uh, authorities in all different parts of the world are struggling with greater and greater difficulty to control the amount and the impact of rubbish and uh, pollution of water, air, and plastic pollution and other things like that. And this is particularly true in the developing world. So Westerners will view these issues from the point of view of a high-tech society with financial resources invested in environmentalism. Can I say to you, um, we're struggling in this country, how much more are poorer nations struggling to cope with things that are beginning to have a serious impact on the life of their nations. Let me tell you now, moving away from that, just something of my own personal journey uh, concerning issues of environmentalism. At a very basic fundamental level, I've always believed that uh, concern for the environment is a Christian priority. It's just felt right to me biblically, intuitively, Um, for a long time, and I was influenced back in the 1980s by the movement called Friends of the Earth that you may be familiar with. And I noticed there wasn't much Christian thinking going on about environmentalism, and I thought at that stage, this is going to be one of the big issues that's going to develop. And the Evangelical Church has been slow off the mark. That's what I thought back in the 1980s. In 2004, I had a sabbatical from work. And my wife and I sat down, and we did an audit of our lifestyle as a family with an environmental uh, concern. And we decided then, over a period of several months, to make a number of fundamental changes in the way that we lived in order to prioritize by every means we could reasonably do environmental protection and concern. We changed our bank, We changed our um, electricity supplier to the most uh, eco-friendly that we could find, that invested the most in renewable energies. We introduced water-saving devices in our home. We emphasized recycling. We made a fresh commitment to public transport. We made a commitment to try and always have an economic motor car. And then a few years later, we were able to install solar panels in our home. Why did we do this? because I felt I don't want to just be a spectator, and I don't want to just be a token supporter of environmentalism. I need to actually start thinking about my own lifestyle. And we didn't tell hardly anybody about any of these things. It wasn't a public story. It's only this year, that I've for the first time ever spoken publicly about this particular journey, which we've been building on since then. Because it wasn't a story we wanted to tell anyone. We just wanted to do it because we wanted to adopt the principle of simplicity and uh, respect for the resources of the world and try and use them respectfully in every way we could without making it a one-issue crusade or trying to persuade other people or trying to think we're going to save the world. We didn't have any of those illusions. I just thought, somehow or other, this is part of my Christian discipleship. Then in 2010, another step took place in my life because the New Frontiers um, movement in the UK then had a theology forum, a group of Bible teachers and theologians who met together and wrote articles and papers, and I was a member of that team. And They asked me to write a paper about the environment, a theological paper which I wrote in 2010, in fact, I've got some copies here for sale for five pounds each at the end, if you're interested, which we're going to, to a man called Sir John Horton Plus website. And this really reinforced my commitment to the, my conviction that this is actually a biblical issue, not just a social or cultural or economic or even a social justice issue, although it is all those things as well. Now, another key thing happened to me at around that time. This was a game-changing moment, because I haven't yet mentioned to you the issue of global warming. I looked at the global warming debate in those days, and I could see people arguing pro and against. I could see skeptics, I could see deniers, I could see affirmers, I could see extremes on all sides of the debate, probably like you see today. But I felt I needed to engage with this debate at a much more fundamental level. And an opportunity presented itself in an amazing way. Because in my town, Shrewsbury, small town um, in the West Midlands, I was told by a friend that a leading international climate scientist was coming to speak and that he was a Christian. So I went to this meeting and I was introduced to a man called Sir John and I found out, and I spoke to him, I had wonderful conversations with him, and it was one of the most important conversations of my life the biggest scientific project ever antes, do they? You think it's going to be some Bible teacher or some evangelist? Well, this was a scientist. But he was an evangelical Christian. He's retired now. But what I've discovered about Sir John was that he was appointed by the United Nations in 1988 when they launched the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, known as the IPCC. Um, He was appointed as the co-chairman of the Scientific Investigation Panel. Previously a very distinguished academic at Oxford and in charge of the Meteorological Office and a prominent atmospheric physicist. And so for 12 years, Sir John developed the scientific methodology for understanding climate change and global warming, and he did it as a committed Christian. Very interesting that. And the United Nations developed an astonishingly large... um, scientific community around the world to try and work out what is actually happening in our climate and what the reasons for it are. It's probably the biggest scientific project taken by man. The only one I can think that matches it is the activities of space exploration sponsored by NASA and others. And Sir John told us about this incredible scientific project and involved people of all sorts of different persuasions, but there were scientists looking at what was happening in the climate. And so I read scientific papers, IPCC papers. I read later on a great book that he wrote called Global Warming, The Complete Briefing, which is a university textbook on this subject which I would recommend. So I then really started engaging with this issue and I became convinced from a scientific point of view that climate change leading to global warming is actually happening. It's a scientifically verifiable fact. And what I discovered about the IPCC reports, which are now well known, is they always tended to report on the conservative side of their opinions, because when you have a gigantic scientific community, and when you are a scientist trying to develop a new way of thinking about things, you're always cautious not to claim something you can't demonstrate with the facts. And if you're a scientist, you'll understand exactly what I mean. And their reports have come out year after year, and many academic institutions have developed environmental um, departments and specialisms uh, all over the world, and especially in this country. And I am convinced, against the deniers, that we are undergoing in the world a fundamental change in our climate, which has definable impacts of real concern. Very simply, the scientists have demonstrated what is known as the greenhouse effect. Think of a greenhouse, think of the sun radiating and coming into the greenhouse, and think of the glass panels, and think of the fact that if you go in a greenhouse, you always tend to notice the temperature inside is greater than the temperature outside. Have you noticed that? The reason is that the glass has the capacity to trap some of the heat, so that um, radiation doesn't just come in and bounce off like it it might do if you're just uh, radiating the Earth. Now, the atmosphere around the Earth functions very similar to the glass panes of a greenhouse. This is why they've coined the expression the greenhouse effect. And what the climate scientists have determined is that the production of certain um, elements, particularly carbon dioxide and some other Gases, um, uh, through the burning of fossil fuels increases the capacity of the atmosphere to trap heat. That essentially is the very, very simple um, explanation of what the greenhouse effect is. And as we have produced ever more carbon dioxide um, and other greenhouse gases in lesser quantities, Um, So the atmosphere now has the capacity to retain within the Earth's atmosphere um, more of the heat that comes from the sun. Less of it uh, irradiates back into space. Some of it does, but the proportions are changing. That's the greenhouse effect. I'm sure you're familiar with this. And so what the scientific community have seen is that slowly but surely, the average temperatures across the Earth are rising. Now, I could demonstrate this to you very simply, because the scientific community internationally announced a few weeks ago that July 2019 is the hottest month ever recorded on planet Earth. And that's based on meteorological um, information from every part of the world. This is not a local thing, not a regional thing. This is a worldwide average estimate. But more significantly than that, We need to say that we need to make an important distinction. I want you to be really clear about this: climate and weather are not the not the same things. Weather varies; it goes up, it goes down, especially if you live in the UK. There's always variation of weather. Climate is the generalised aggregate of those trends over a long period of time. And so, it takes climate. So there are some beneficial circumstances called the weather. It rains, it's sunny, it's dry, it's hot, there's a storm. Climate is an analysis over longer periods of time. So don't be deceived by the fact that uh, one year might be a bit different from the other. Climate is assessing the long-term trends. And the long-term trends are represented by this and other similar diagrams. The red line is the Averaging out of the information, this is a kind of worldwide analysis, which tells us that in very small amounts, the average temperature has been rising throughout the 20th century and is now estimated to continue to rise at an accelerated level. Now, the impacts of climate change, um, some can be positive. So in some areas, like, for example, in Canada and Siberia, you get um, land you can now use for agriculture you previously couldn't because it's got warmer. And you can get uh, more carbon in the atmosphere, can create better growing conditions in temperate climates. So there are some benefits. But generally, there are negative implications. The most obvious one is the melting ice, the rising sea levels with more water in the sea, but also a second factor, which is called thermal expansion. The, more, the higher the temperature of the water is, the more the, ex- the water actually expands, so the volume, the cubic capacity is increased. That's an important point. So rising sea levels are becoming a concern. But the most important thing that I want to draw your attention to to today, and this is the key thing that I want to communicate, more important than anything else, this is what I've come to understand through uh, consideration of this issue, is that the climate science movements are telling us that the key thing that changes is a more intense rainfall cycle. It's called, scientifically, the hydrological cycle more intense process of evaporation precipitation and rainfall events will take place if the atmosphere and if the ground and if the sea rise in temperature and so we get more intense events some of them are rainfall flooding extreme rain but in some areas you get also the other end of the spectrum as Uh, Global warming interacts with other aspects in the climate system, such as the, the, the wind patterns. And you can get increased drought. So you get more intense weather events at both ends of the spectrum. Do you see what I mean? You're getting more intense rainfall, but more intense drought. Now, we notice some of those things in a marginal kind of way in a country like this. And we have the capacity to deal with the implications of drought um, and flooding with our infrastructure and our water management system uh, more generally. And so it isn't really a very big issue for us in a temperate climate. Now, I want you to keep that thought in mind and I want to place it with another thought. Once you get these two things together in your mind, you'll begin to see why climate change is such a fundamental issue of social justice. There's a second factor. So, bearing in mind all this, have a look at this. Here, in this map of the world, I want to focus on the tropical parts of the world. Essentially, the land between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn. Can you see that clearly on the map? And obviously, you can see the higher temperatures represented by the reds and oranges. Um, These are average temperatures in those countries. Now, what the climate scientists have told us is that the uh, rainfall cycle, the hydrological cycle's variations are greater in hotter climates. The variations we see in temperate climates like ours are significant but modest and manageable currently. But the variation in the hotter climates, um, are much more extreme. The average temperatures, the ground temperatures, the air temperatures, the sea temperatures are higher. The levels of evaporation caused by this um, uh, increased uh, temperature are greater. And by the way, the atmosphere can, can, can hold more evaporated water if it's a warmer atmosphere. So you have another factor which is the ability of the atmosphere to hold that water, which is likely to produce a more intense rainfall event in certain circumstances, bearing in mind that this is interacting with many other complex factors in the weather system which are nothing to do with climate change, but they have an interface with it. So in these hotter areas, we have more drought, more intense rainfall, more flooding events. The other thing about the hotter areas that's important to note is this is where poverty in the world is greatest by far. So the poorer countries of the world, whether in Africa or in Asia or in Latin America, broadly speaking, fall into that band between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn. Would you agree? If you think of countries you know and you place them on the map, most of them are in that region. So that means if we add these factors together, it is the poorest countries that face the most extreme consequences of climate change and global warming which is largely a man-made phenomenon caused by the burning of fossil fuels and one or two other things. Essentially, the burning of fossil fuels. Now, can you see the, uh, where, I'm, where I'm going with this? Uh, what I'm gathering together is a scientific perspective and linking it with a social justice perspective. Because the poorest countries are least equipped to deal with greater symptoms of man-made climate change and global warming, and therefore already, the world is suffering, especially in poorer countries, from climate. I just said why? Because the rainfall is becoming more unpredictable. Experiments whilst travelling Uh, and thinking about this over the last few years. And the experiment goes like this. Whenever I travel to a country in this region, and I've done a number of times in the last few years, I always look out for people who are involved in agriculture and farming and animal husbandry. And I ask them how things are going. And I've done this in a number of different countries and people with nationals from different countries, and I've always got the same answer. Let me, let me describe it to you. I was in Malaysia a few years ago and I spoke to a man who managed a rubber plantation. It's a, it's a major product of Malaysia. And I said, how's it going? He said, well, we're having real difficulty. Why are you having difficulty, increased difficulty? Because we can't predict the rainfall and we need a lot of water for rubber production. And I'm feeling worried because I think climate change is going to hit us really hard. He said that to me in a cafe in the middle of a town in Malaysia, just in a casual conversation. In the same meeting, Happened to be, it was a conference, happened to be a small holding farmer and church leader from Burundi, one of the poorest countries in Central Africa. And I spoke to him and I said, How's it going for the small f- um, holders in your country? He said, Well, we're really struggling with climate change. I said, Why? Because the rainforest is becoming more and more intense, and drought is more intense, and the small holding farmers are really struggling. Fast forward a few years, I'm on a flight between Zimbabwe and Zambia. I'm trying to get to Zambia and I've been routed via Zimbabwe and between Harare and Lusaka, the relevant cities, is a flight of less than an hour. My seat is spare as I land in Harare, the capital of Zimbabwe, and a black Zimbabwean comes and sits next to me and I get chatting to him. And he's flying to, to the USA, and he's just, uh, he's just hopping along uh, on this particular flight. So I have about 45 minutes to talk to him. And I said, tell me, tell me your story. Why are you living in the USA? Well, I fell out with Robert Mugabe many years ago, and I had to move to the States. But my family are farmers in Zimbabwe. Oh, very interesting. Black farmers in Zimbabwe. And I grew up on a farm, he said. And... He said the farming was very rich in those days, in the 1980s. The white farmers developed irrigation and we worked with them in our land. And our farm, owned by uh, black Zimbabweans, was very productive. It was a small farm and it was very productive. I said, what's going on now? He said, well, it, it's, it's ruined. And I said to me, I said to him, what's the number one reason why it's ruined? And I was thinking in my mind, he would say political and economic corruption. But he said, without hesitation climate change. My family, this is in Zimbabwe, near starvation level because of recent liability of the water supply and the increased experience of drought and semi-drought conditions and arid conditions, and we are really struggling. I could go on. These are anecdotal stories, but they can easily be borne out um, uh, by scientific assessment now we have in our meeting here today my good friend Austin who's sitting here who's from Zambia and he is a farmer I just happened to see him there um, so I'm going to tell you a little bit of his story and works with Joseph Mwila and my church and a charity linked to our church is working with them to develop a farming mechanism farming methodology in Zambia called foundations for farming uh, which uh, uh, preserves more moisture in the soil and helps smallholders to, to produce better results. And one of the things they're battling with in Zambia is much more unreliable hydrological conditions. And even as we speak, some of the areas that my friend Austin is serving with this methodology are at near starvation level. And some of the cause of that, not all of it, is to do with climate change. Now, the background is not much represented. There's been a lot happening politically as governments have been working with scientists and generally speaking, apart from Donald Trump and one or two others, accept the consensus of the scientists that um, climate change is happening and we need to actually do something about it. And the British government is committed to that process. I'm not going to talk extensively about that. But I am privileged at representing Jubilee Plus, the organization that I lead, which is sponsoring this life zone and of which Natalie is a member who spoke yesterday. I'm privileged representing Jubilee Plus to be an associate of the United Nations uh, uh, Climate Change British uh, Network. They have faith representatives on their Network. So I go occasionally to very big meetings with lots of very intelligent scientists and I'm not a scientist and I sit and listen to what they're saying and I've been at reports from the IPCC and listened to the, I've looked at all the science on the screen and uh, so I've had a wonderful insight into what's going on but the church is not much represented and that's what needs to change and you're part of that change. If we had time, we'd look at the biblical perspective that underlies my um, concern. I didn't start with climate change. I didn't start with science. I didn't start with um, problems in Africa or anywhere else. I started really with the scriptures and an intuitive love of the natural world. And by the way, one of our problems in the West is we've lost connection with the natural world. We see it as a park and a recreation ground but we don't know much about it we don't engage with it we don't understand much about farming and climate and rainfall and land management and all those other things we need to hear those voices we also need to hear the biblical voices and I'll just give you a couple of headlines here if we look through the Bible we very quickly see that from the very beginning God gave to mankind Adam and Eve initially in in Genesis 1 verses 26 to 28 a direct responsibility for the management of the earth. They were to rule over the land. That is not to exploit it. That is to manage, manage it as stewards of the divine creator. That is the mandate on mankind. Deeply corrupted by the fall, of course. But that's the original mandate. And can I say to you, that mandate has not been rescinded. And it is the responsibility of the church prophetically to remind our citizens, our nation, our government and ourselves as church communities that we still have that mandate from our Heavenly Father. And it came to Adam and Eve right the way through. And when we look at the nation of Israel, we see that just as mankind generically has a responsibility for the earth, so Israel, the people of Israel had a ecological responsibility for their land and that's a paradigm for us because God built into the law of Moses all sorts of ecological principles the Sabbath principle the gleaning principle the the jubilee year the resting of animals as well as mankind the resting of fields on a cycle of crop rotation that indicate to us that the paradigm community of God's people ancient Israel was built on many different divine principles, but some of them were ecological and they were a prophetic application of the original creation mandate given to Adam and Eve. So that should be in our minds. And when we go to the prophets and to the Psalms, we see in the Psalms an incredible focus on the metaphorical capacity of creation to worship God and point mankind to divine realities look at Psalm 104 which has been christened the ecological psalm if I had time I'd go go through it verse by verse with you we haven't got time and the prophets interestingly enough indicate that sin causes not just mankind To struggle, but creation suffers because of sin, as sin begins to take hold in human society. But the prophets also anticipated, and this leads us to the New Testament, an ecological renewal with the coming of the Messiah. This is a theme very, very rarely um, identified. But if you had a look, for example, and uh, through Isaiah 11, you remember a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse, and his Roots uh, will be a branch that will bear fruit. Do you remember that one? The Spirit of the Lord will be upon him, etc., etc. Well, go to verse 6. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. The little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, etc., etc. And they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. Now, what we, when we read these things, we read them anthropologically. We read them as if they're just about mankind. And I've heard this scripture explained Countless times in that way, just simply ignoring the incredibly obvious reality that the prophet Isaiah could see that as mankind experiences salvation through the Messiah, so there is hope for the creation. Because the therapeutic effect of salvation of mankind will be a greater care of and preservation of the natural world. And eschatologically, when Christ comes again, there's going to be a grand renewal, which is not going to be just a spiritual reality of mankind. Jesus speaks in Matthew 19, verse 28, of the renewal of all things. And Paul speaks in Romans 8, in an absolutely amazing passage that bears on our theme. Um, Romans 8, verses um, 19 to uh, 19 to 22. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. That's a reference to the resurrection by the way, the day of resurrection. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice but by the will of the one who subjected it. That's a reference to the fall. The fall according to Paul's theology affected the created order. There was dysfunctionality coming into the creative order in the same way as dis- dysfunctionality came into the life of mankind. But by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Well, either that's just a general poetic expression or, preferably, it's a statement of actual eschatological reality that we're going to see the renewal of this creation because god will not rest until it is restored and that will come finally with the new heaven and the new earth now we don't have time to go much further because i'm a preacher this could go on a very very long time this section Um, but I'm not going to take it any further. All I want to do is to ask you to think about these specific and immediate environmental issues in a wider biblical perspective and not just in a local, political, or social, or personal perspective. Think big picture. Now, I want to propose to you as I draw this presentation gradually to an end that there are three reasons why the environment matters to Christians. And all these three reasons are important. The first and most important one is that we are entrusted with creation in the manner that I have described from Genesis 1 verse 26 onwards. And so we need to look at issues of environmental degradation with great concern We need to be greatly concerned that our seas are being corrupted, for example, by plastic and oil. Let's just take plastic as an example. We all know now through scientific um, investigation that that plastic is going to get into marine life and corrupt it and, and ultimately destroy some of it in a very, very profound way. Well, we're entrusted with creation. Any Christian who has any influence or any capacity to influence this should be doing something. We are entrusted with the forests and the rainforests. Well, that's a pretty topical question today, isn't it? Because we've all seen the news about the Amazonian rainforest on fire in hundreds of places. I mean, this is a tragedy of incredible proportions. We should be weeping with sadness. What about the great forests of Siberia? Recent political journalism has revealed immense devastation of the vast Siberian forest areas under the eyes of the Russian, complicit Russian government. And so the story could go on in hundreds of different ways. Those are just two obvious examples. I'll come to what you can do personally in a minute, by the way. Because you think, well, you're thinking now, I can't change the world. Yes, you can't do it on your own. Um, but I'm, I've got to start with a big picture and then I'm going to zone it down to you personally and me personally. And the second thing is we need to respect science. Science tells us that there are significant problems. And this is not just one or two politically motivated atheist scientists. There is an incredible consensus on the scientific community about uh, general ecological degradation and their concern about that and also about climate change. Not not everyone agrees on the details, but the general trajectory, like in any scientific investigation, the general trajectory is held by the vast majority and the evidence is backing them up. And you see it on your television screens frequently. We should not... Be resistant to this because some people are exploiting this with another philosophy in mind, like Buddhism or New Age or a a radical left philosophy that you don't particularly agree with. Don't let that hinder you from looking at the science as an important piece of evidence. By the way, science developed principally through the influence of Christianity on the Western world which indicated that this world was created by God, was orderly, and we were given minds to investigate it. So we should be thankful for our scientific heritage. And then the third issue, which I feel very passionately about, is that the environment is also an issue of social justice. And this is why in Jubilee Plus we've taken this issue up. And I've illustrated this to you in two different lines of investigation. One is talking about pollution and the detrimental effects of pollution on poorer people is always significantly greater than on richer people. And secondly, with climate change and global warming, and we could add in other things as well. I want to propose to you that as Christians who are concerned for social justice, we should be deeply concerned about the environmental damage in the world which causes the poorer citizens of the world to suffer disproportionately and often, nowadays, disastrously. We're seeing the increases, increase of desert, desertification. We're seeing terrible drought conditions. We're seeing the, it's important for us to consider a biblical flooding now, as Westerners look at flooding, we see it as a kind of a six-month or a one-year issue. It happens. It's serious. The insurance companies start having to pay out big monies. The local authorities have to move. The government moves in. Some minister comes in and promises a few million pounds to rectify the situation. And hardly any lives are lost. Uh, there's a lot of inconvenience. And a few years later, it's all gone. It's, it's largely forgotten. Consider Mozambique, which in recent months experienced unbelievable storm and flooding. Now, Mozambique is a desperately poor country. So what happens with flooding in a poor country is that families will be displaced from their land permanently. Or disadvantaged permanently. Or members of the family will die. Or they'll lose their jobs. Or their infrastructure will never be rebuilt within their lifetime. That's not an experience that we have in the UK if something gets destroyed by flooding somebody's going to rebuild this again we've got the finance and the technology and the willingness to do that and so I feel it's important for us to consider mandate a scientific lead and a social justice priority all those three matter we only need one of those to be concerned but they all three come together And that leads us to you and me. I don't think you're a climate scientist, not many of you, might be wrong. Ah, yes, somebody's just pointed to someone who is a climate scientist who might come and disagree with me at the end of my talk. Um, Not many of us have positions of political power. There might be one or two of you here. But we do have quite a number of opportunities. First of all, in your households. Now, there is in our country a lot of tokenism as as far as environment goes, where people say, well, I do my bit for the environment. And so they do one small gesture, but leave totally unreformed the rest of their life. And they think the gesture will solve their conscience. I don't think we should be going for tokenism. I think we should be going for an audit. and We shouldn't be going for legalism and rules and things like that. And I'm not going to propose anything like that whatsoever. But I do think, in the light of what we know, it is reasonable for us as households to be prescriptive. But I think we should start to say, what are we wasting? What are we consuming that we don't need to consume? Overconsumption is an endemic problem in the Western world, and it's very rarely addressed in the Christian environment, in the Christian context, which I find amazing. I've indicated some things that my family did 15 years ago and still continues to do, and we've done a few other things. But it's not something I want to talk about or consider... Uh, uh, any kind of badge of honor. Far from it. These are just simple things to do. And that's the way I encourage you to think. Start with your own life. Now, one of the great problems with uh, reforming movements in society is that people don't start with themselves. They start with a problem out there and they become the self-appointed critic of other people. I am not advocating this approach. We start with ourselves. If we believe these things, we begin to think what do I need to do and those actions were very very different for all of us they won't be the same and we should never be prescriptive but I think we should start reflecting on this and then in our workplaces now environmentalism is developing momentum in the workplace but it's good to have Christians involved in those discussions and to reform practices. I'll give you a very interesting example from my own church. We have a member of our our church who is now retired. He previously was the um, director of our parks and uh, for the local council. And he noticed that in our town, there's there's a little stream running through part of the town that then joins up with the main river in the center of the town. And he noticed that all the land along the side of this Uh, stream was uh, neglected, Uh, rubbish was tipped all over it, kids played in it, Um, uh, some of it belonged to the council, they didn't do anything with it. And he came up with an idea. He thought, why don't we create a country park that's basically based on the land either side of the stream for several miles? Why doesn't the council buy the land regenerate the area and create some nice walkways. And so he personally oversaw the project of creating what is now a country park in the middle of our town that's attracted partnerships and so on, attracts wildlife. People now come there to see the kingfishers. They never used to do that. The kingfishers and other wildlife have come to the safe habitat and families walk up and down And so there's just one person, now he had influence and opportunity, who out of the same ecological convictions that I've given, because he's a friend of mine and we've talked about this very deeply over the years, he thought, what can I do in my workplace? Now the things you can do be much smaller than that, but what can you do in your workplace? Think creatively, think prophetically, and don't despise the day of small things. And what about local churches? Here's my vision for local churches. We're beginning to move down this road in my own church. Here's my vision. I would love churches to be centers of the care of creation. That when people come to church communities, they notice the careful stewardship of the natural world that's appropriate to that church community. It's building its land, etc., Wouldn't that be wonderful? And what about in our local community? The exciting thing about environmentalism is it provides incredible opportunities for partnerships, just like food banks do. But here's a partnership issue that we haven't really developed yet, but I want to encourage you to think strategically about this. People want to be partners in environmental issues. And if you are a Christian partner as an organization or as an individual people may ask you why are you doing this? And of course you'll say you won't say because I believe in mother earth or because I'm a Buddhist. You'll be saying because of the Messiah Jesus Christ. My faith. My trust in the Bible. I gave this seminar a few days ago at this other camp I was at in Exeter, similar seminar. Similar sound in the background by the way. And <laughs> which you get everywhere with seminars. It's just, the, it's just an occupational hazard. And a guy came up to me at the end of the, this exact same seminar. And he said to me, can I just tell you my story? I said, yeah, talk to me. He's from a big city in the south of England. He said, well, I run community gardens because I believe all this stuff. And I'm a, I'm a horticulturalist and a vegetable grower. And I said, well, what happens in your community gardens? He said, well, you wouldn't believe the people who come to our community garden run by our church. We get all the oddballs, all the radicals, all the extreme ecologists, all the vegans, and, you know, all, sorry about that if you're a vegan, but, you know, (laughs) radical left people, all the Buddhists come, all the people who hate the government and blame it all on the government. They're all there, and they're all talking to me. And they asked me, why do you do this? And so he's created this community consisting very largely of unbelievers who are often more motivated than believers. Why can't we get in the middle of that culture? And then, more challengingly, comes the issue of Public policy, influencing decision makers, that starts with your borough councillors, your town councillors, your your rural councillors. It starts with MPs, it starts with uh, people with influence in your community. We can give them ideas of small and big things that they can do. I make it a principle when I see my MP, which I try to do regularly. To talk to him face to face about environmental issues and the government's track record and my opinion of it, which I'm not going to share with you now. Folks, this is an incredible, incredibly important topic. It's been hugely neglected. And the Christians and church people who've been most interested have generally speaking not been evangelicals. But that is changing. Countries that are most vulnerable. But I want evangelicals and people in our type of movements and people who believe in the power of the Spirit to engage with this issue strategically because you never know what God might do. And it really does matter that this world slows down global warming because otherwise we're going to see more and more really severe suffering in poorer parts of the world. I want to conclude with just one illustration for you about the rich and the poor. Now one of the impacts of global warming has been recognized to be rising sea levels. This is a very difficult phenomenon to actually see because of course the, the, the seas are constantly moving uh, and, and expanding and, and, and so on. Um, but it is a measurable reality in some places, and it's anticipated to be a significant reality because we are seeing the melting of ice at an unprecedented rate at the moment. Now, we then think of the countries that are most vulnerable, and we think, what's going to happen there if the sea rises you know, a foot or two feet over a, a long period of time by the end of the century or whenever? Let me illustrate this question of the rich and the poor by telling you that two of the most vulnerable countries in the world are the Netherlands and Bangladesh. Now, what are the outcomes going to be in the Netherlands by reasonable prediction? The Netherlands has a hugely developed system of dams and dikes and a very complex structure of engineering and water management And they are already making advanced plans for enhancing their system of flood defense and water defense in the light of rising water levels they anticipate during the rest of this century. And what's more, they have the money to do it. You know what I'm going to say next, don't you? It pains me to say it, but what's going to happen in Bangladesh? Who's going to build those flood defences? And who's going to pay for them? There are no answers to that question as I stand here today. You see, it's a social justice issue that we care for the environment. And some of what's going to need to be done with climate change is not going to be to stop it altogether, but to mitigate the damage to intervene to reduce the impact of the most devastating things. Now, that takes political will. That takes scientific development. And that takes money. And that takes international partnerships. And we need Christians in those discussions across the world, from NGOs, from scientific community, and in government, and in financial bodies. So this is a very very important issue and our team at Jubilee Plus have decided at this particular time we're involved in numerous other issues but we have decided now we must address it directly and that is what I'm doing here I don't want to instill anything negative or fearful or guilt I hope you're not feeling those things I want to give you an encouragement to believe there is a perspective that makes sense And there are things that we can do, and they're worth doing. And you see, some of the things we do, and this is my final point, and this is really helpful, I find really helpful to understand. Some of the things we do in social justice issues are prophetic rather than solutions. They're indicative of the will of God, and they're indicative of a longer-term um, reality that will take place what we do to care for creation now won't stop all the problems ultimately it may mitigate the damage and it will bring glory to God and it will be good discipleship and it will bring social justice and it's really worth doing but in the long term it's a prophetic indicator we want to love creation because God loves creation he made it and we need to connect to this wonderful world in a far more intuitive way. We need to see the wonder and the glory of God there and not just see it in instrumental terms. Both communism and capitalism and all other modern economic forms have generally leaned towards seeing this, the environments in general, as just a resource to use once and then it's gone. God made it a different way. He wanted sustainability. And in the nation of Israel, he built a sustainable model of ecology if they followed the law of Moses. So we need to rediscover some of that spirit in the 21st century. By God's grace, we're on the journey. Thanks for listening. Uh, we're going to, we have an opportunity for some Q&A and Natalie has the microphone. So uh, my request is that you ask a question and don't make a long statement and I'm interested in your statements but I prefer to have them at the end of the meeting. Um, I want to answer questions and uh, my second request is if you have a question please wait till the microphone comes because we want to capture it on the audio so everyone can hear and so it's recorded for others. So, hands for questions. Thank you. We have just a a few minutes. Martin, I know uh, like a lot of people here, I'd like to do something practical in my own life to change things. Um, It's a bit of a lazy question, but you've got a lot of information about what's effective that we can do, like slowing down, changing light bulbs, changing our car. What could you suggest on a limited budget would be the most effective steps we could take to help the planet? Well, first of all, I would say that's a good question. It'd be quite, quite good to refer to some Christian organizations who work in this area. Um, one is an organization by, which has an unusual, uh, I think it's a Portuguese name, and, and it's called Rocha, A-R-O-C-H-A. They're based in London, and they run a scheme called Eco Church, and they talk a lot about lifestyle issues. So if you look them up, uh, it's good to talk to Tier Fund in their environmental departments who are very active in these areas. I think that my answer to your question, just personally, is the most obvious things we can look at are things that we waste. What do we waste? Um a gigantic amount of food in our country is waste. And, and the similar proportions of household food waste, uh, they're a similar proportion than in, than in the food chain, in fact, if you look at the research. Um, we can look at transportation um, and think more radically about that. Um, and we can also look at the food we eat. There is an increasing narrative concerning the um, the actual consumption of resources of some of the meat we eat and so on. I'm not going to go into that issue in detail, but I will recommend to you that you might want to read a very good book by a friend of mine called Ruth Valerio, and it's called Just Living, which has a very detailed section on food and um, uh, might be helpful to you. Let's take another question. These are very quick headline answers. Yes. Do you have any tips for resources that talk about kind of the intersection of like there's the environmental side of things and then also like the other day listening about kind of trafficking and products that are ethical in that way? And sometimes I feel a bit overwhelmed by all the different things that I'm trying to think about when I buy something. Okay. Right. Well, let me give... I've got a good answer to that one. Um, I'm always a bit nervous that I don't really know the answer to anybody's questions, but an interesting thing has happened... Um, And that is that the publishers of the book that Natalie and I co-wrote, which I think you might be aware of, called The Church for the Poor. Have you seen that book? The publishers have been in discussion with us about a follow-up book, which they have now commissioned, which we are now writing. And this book is about a poverty-busting lifestyle. Because... And this is something that I actually pitched to the publishers, and I said, I'd really like to write on this if you're willing to commission the book. And Natalie was very uh, much in agreement with this. Because I noticed something very common, which is that people say, yeah, I want to get involved. I'm really concerned about homelessness. I'm really concerned about food poverty. I'm really concerned about this, that, or the other. But had never had a thought that involvement with human need might have an impact on our own lifestyle. We might actually need to think again, well, actually, do I need to rethink anything in my own lifestyle in the light of what I'm involved with? So we are now writing a book on that which addresses environmentalism. I've just written a chapter on it and just submitted it to Tearfund to review. Um, And I've also written a chapter on consumerism, where there is an interface also with the modern slavery issue. Now, the difficulty with the answer to this question is it's not coming out till next summer, (laughs) okay? that's we're on the case and your question is such a good question and i do appreciate it sorry i can't give a systematic answer uh, there's a gentleman there or um, um one of the um, sort of really significant things that seems to affect climate change is flights and um it's always struck me because there's a necessity sometimes like for Oh because we're, we're my wife's from Brazil, so we sometimes have to travel to Brazil. And I'm just sort of wondering what tips we can follow to mitigate you know, what's the best way to look at air flights, really, and things. Yes, well, yeah, well, this is a very big question. So, um, the basic fact is that um, civil aviation is, is a, just a gigantic market and it's still growing so a number of things have happened one is an immense amount of research has gone into creating um, more fuel efficient aircraft we've made a lot of progress in that particularly valuable and our international problem if the market is still growing um it it salvages our conscience to some extent but it doesn't actually solve the problem so i think that the level of um International travel that the world currently experiences probably isn't sustainable in the long run. Um, and some people involved in environmentalism decide, have to, I mean, I've got a friend, for example, who said to me, and uh, I don't agree with this, by the way, but I'll just tell you what he said. He said, Well, I'm really concerned about this flights issue. So uh, our family decided to go on holiday to Switzerland. So I said, Well, what did you do? Oh, we didn't fly. So I said, What do you do? We drove. And I thought, <laughs> Yes, maybe I'm not quite sure that's going to solve the problem. So there are some false. You know, I'm not sure that, that you know that, that the economy of that is really going to work out. Um, so I think um, it's good to reflect on our use of aviation and make individual decisions. But the fact that if you boycott a flight, that the flight is still going to fly. So you have that, I'm not sure that method is really particularly valuable. And our international trading and international relations situation is such that flying is, is, is there for the long term. Um, I think a more productive way of thinking about it, which is not popular, is to consider um, a higher level of taxation on recreational flying so that it really costs us something, and to use some of that money for investing in environmental uh, benefits. Now, that's a personal opinion. That's just a personal opinion. I'm not an expert in this area, and there's no easy solution, because as we are we're we're making more progress with dealing with cars towards electrification, et cetera, than we can possibly do in aviation in the uh, foreseeable future until we make some spectacular further technological changes. These are very hard questions, and by the way, there's a lady just there. Or you, uh, there's a lady there. You can see there are no simple answers to any of these questions, by the way, and I'm not here to give answers. I'm here to give you perspectives to think about. Yeah? What, what can we do about supermarkets and plastic on vegetables? Um, well, there was a TV programme about that not so long ago. Um, do you have an answer to that question? No, no. Um, I'm always looking for someone with an answer to the question. Um, it's, a handy, it's a handy technique when you're in deep water. Um, so, um, can I make a general point? David, over there. Yes. Power. So, with all these very specific issues, they're only going to change if there is a consumer, a generic consumer movement. So finding that movement and supporting it is more likely to work than knocking on the door of your manager and saying, how about changing it all? Because he or she will politely say, yes, we'll record that and take it to head office and not much more will be done. However, you need to know that in the area of food and supermarkets, they are already getting twitchy about public pressure in a number of these different areas around packaging. There is already enough customer movements uh, to anticipate some change and that's come about through um people like hugh fernley whittingdale remember him um and others and uh i think we just need to be judicious and think you know we need to get behind things that, get, that are going to move but there's no harm in talking to managers of shops it's a good thing to do uh, uh david over there yes we've just got about another five minutes and then we'll stop promptly at half past. I'm aware we're running late, but we're just running according to the schedule that they've set me. Yeah. I don't know if it's a question, Martin, or a suggestion, but I just want to suggest to everyone that they consider moving their energy supplier to either good energy or ecotricity or one of the other ones that den- uh, generates renewables. I think that's really a good thing to do. I think churches can do that, and I think that can really help you to use renewables and invest in renewables rather than using fossil fuels when you do electricity. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm not going to make any commercial recommendations from the platform, but you've heard what David has said. Um, I moved my supplier for that reason, but you probably noticed I didn't tell you which one I moved to. That's not because I'm embarrassed about it, but because that is not the purpose of my presentation. I'm not trying to do things like that. I'm trying to give you a broad canvas to think on, and you have to make your own decisions. Um, So that's helpful. Um, uh, So that lady there, and then Roger here. I've just wondered about because there are resources within Cry Central as well that are doing all these kind of things on like a smaller scale. So it'd be really good. I don't know whether Jubilee Plus is doing that already, but there are like people like because um, I was in the Kaleidoscope session yesterday, and there was a lady who set up like a website called My Indie Wardrobe, yes. which talks about yeah. like ethical companies and things. So it'd be good to have even like a resource within Cry Central about That's what it. these what these small really, companies are doing. That's a really good suggestion. Um, there is a team emerging within Christ Central, I'm not leading that team, it's not my responsibility, but I'm aware of it, that is beginning to look at these kind of social justice issues and the, interf- and the interface with environmentalism will be important. So um, could you send an email to Jubilee Plus just to remind me to follow that one up because I might just forget it. Um, because, uh, okay, so I think we've probably got time for one more question. Uh, yes, yes. So, uh, uh, non-violent direct action. Organisations are getting involved in that. Um, I'm glad you said non-violence, Roger. Um, that's a good start. So there's uh, for Extinction Rebellion, for example. Extinction Rebellion? Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, and in our, in our own community, that's a bit of a dilemma for, for, for me in terms of they're planning direct action against farming and part we serve a farming community. So just wonder about the dilemma of... Partnering, or how do do we operate in that? Um, Right, this is a tricky one. Um, uh, I nearly got caught up in a a kind of lockdown in London the other day when Extinction Rebellion had closed down most of the main uh, mainline stations. Um, We need to think about these things and look at each one on its merits, um, and and be judicious and deal with them also locally. And this, your question also brings out another important issue, which is the interface between the church and the agricultural community, uh, which is a very weak area of church leadership but needs to develop in order to be partners with them in looking at environmental issues that they face. So I'm not giving you a very direct answer, but I think we, we should be looking at all these things. Folks, I think we really have come to an end. Now, let me finish by saying it would be great to see you at our next conference in Bristol on the 16th of November. You can go online to find out more about Jubilee Plus. You've got the website there. My colleague Sheena is going to be here with some literature. And if you wanted my theology paper that I alluded to earlier on a copy of that, for a five pounds, uh, you, can, you can buy a copy today and I would invite you to come and do that. I'm really grateful that you chose this seminar. And I'm really grateful they gave me the biggest haul, because last year I got really overwhelmed with numbers. So thank you for coming, and please reflect on it. Don't take this as prescriptive. Take it as a a general way of thinking. And I want to encourage you, develop it, talk about it, reflect it, uh, listen uh, online again, share this seminar with others in your church, and God bless you. Thanks for coming.